Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. Uh, I have had people lately emailing me going, Rabbi, and it's like, hey, no, 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 no. Uh, I am a spiritual director, which is a counselor, a spiritual counselor, and I'm ordained in that particular uh, practice, uh, but I'm not a rabbi. Um, you know, it's like in different religious uh, uh, practices, there are lay people who have you know, deep responsibilities within their congregations. And then there are clergy. So like in Buddhism, there are lay meditation teachers who become part of practices. And in Anglicans, you get lay leaders of services and things like that. So I think there's a place for everybody within certain um, faiths to do whatever they can to contribute to things. And my contribution is to kind of be a spiritual companion to people. And I have to say in this period, this COVID-19 time of our lives, um, it's an interesting time because people are really trying to figure out who am I now? All the things that were defining me before, the, the job I had, the people I walked by, the suit I wore, um, they're out, of, out the window and we're in our homes and virtually connecting with people. And in some ways, I think we're virtually connecting uh, with more people than we were before, because the one big thing that we have now, and I have this affirmed every time I speak to somebody, is time. We're actually able to have time, time with our family, time for ourselves. It could be stir-crazy time, but it could also just be the expansion of time. Because when I think of the pre-COVID period, there's never enough time. You say, let's get together with somebody, and you know you only half mean it, even though you really love them. You can't see them because there's no time. I got to get the kids from here. I got to get to this job here. I got to go over here and do that. Um, and it causes a kind of anxiety and frenzy. And now we're on the other side of that. So it's a different version of the same life. And I'm really interested in how things are going to be the longer this goes on, the more I think there may be some good things that come out of it in terms of us being able to look at our lives and wonder, what was I doing? Why was I doing all that stuff? And that maybe we have a chance to appreciate the fact that without the frenzied activity, you're not as worried that the cars are going to run over your kids and that the sky is going to never be blue enough and, and all those other wonderful things. So uh, I hope you're all safe and well. I hope it's there's good things coming to you. I hope that you're not touched in, in, a, in a dramatic and, and awful way by this virus. Some of you are, and God love you for what you're going through. And the rest of us, if we can be patient and vigilant, I'm sure something good can come of all this time that we have. Um, I'm going to talk to somebody now who I, I don't know. We've never met. And sometimes I interview people on this show that I've known forever, and sometimes I don't. So this is one of those times where a friend, Mr. Mike, Toronto Mike said, you know, I think you should really speak to this woman. And I said, okay, why? And he said, she's fantastic. She's so interesting. She's got so much to talk about and she has a spiritual life. So I thought, great. I trust Mike. I don't know why, but I do. Uh, so I want to just a short little introduction because we don't know each other well. And now I'll get to know you and do a much longer introduction the next time I do this. Um, she is, well, it's so interesting because she's a musician. One of your songs, by the way, I want to talk about is a beautiful song. But okay, so, so she is a musician, a singer, uh, almost an opera singer when she was younger. 
Um, she's an actress. Uh, she's a television host. Uh, she's a mother. And she's a Buddhist. So all of those things I think I can say with some sense of certainty. And her name is Tara Sloan, and she's here now. Hello. <laughs> Hi. It is nice <laughs> to meet you from afar. It's fantastic. <laughs> Virtually meeting each other. I yeah. know. So what are your thoughts on what's going on? Oh, my gosh. I mean, I what you said really resonated with me. I think that there is um, an enormous possibility to allow ourselves to reconnect with some things that we have, <clears throat> excuse me, desperately needed to reconnect with for many of us in our lives. And that is a sense of space, taking space. I know that um, I have had to force myself over the last period of time to actually carve out space in my life and um, realizing how important it is. And so I think if we allow ourselves as a society to take stock of what is happening now and the sort of beauty that is emerging, I think it's a time for great possibility. But I mean, obviously it's, um, it's really troubling. It's troubling, it's, um, it's frightening. Um, there are, it's politically terrifying. Um, so there's a lot going on. I, I think we're all on a bit of a roller coaster ride emotionally and I, sometimes I have to sit to sit down and remember that, that we're going through a collective trauma yeah. and um, our brains are, are sort of, we're, we're all in permanent fight or flight mode and it makes for, you know, not normal um, function. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well put. I think there's a lot that we have to reevaluate in ourselves, but you know, somebody spoke about it recently as it's the great revealer. You know, and it's revealing a lot of holes in how we care for each other in this society and the vulnerable being the ones at the most risk. But it's also a revealer of who we are. You know, I mean, I, I you've got kids. I got kids. I got older kids who live on their own, but I've got two little kids, you know, 10 and 14 in my life. That's little. Uh, and um I got to do stuff like I got to do homeschooling and I got to connect and, and it's, we're all stuck here together. And my, my wife has a little office, just not in the house where she can go and do her, her thing. Um, but it's, uh, how are you finding that, that whole, no, I'm just here. I'm home. Well, it's a challenge for me. I, I, you know, I spent many years on the road as a rock musician and then I have now spent six years on the road as a, a hockey host. So that's sort of my, my default seems to be perpetual motion and, and there's some kind of comfort in that. So slowing down, stopping in this forced way, I think is, is really good. Um, but definitely reveals something about me and my, my need for distraction, <laughs> but it's, yeah, I mean, it is, it, it can be a really precious opportunity as claustrophobic as we all may be. Um, I mean, I, I haven't spent this much time at home with my family in so long. And um, so, yeah, aside from the odd, odd blowups, we're, we're doing okay within it. So what's that thing about distraction? What's all that about? Well, I mean, I think that it's a bit of an addiction for many of us, um, whether we know it or not, you know, whether it's turning on the TV or just like for me again, being on the go, doing something, having a plan, um, not simply being able to rest in space very easily. 
Um, which for me is where meditation practice comes into play because that is literally, it is the act of, of resting in space um, and practicing that and seeing what arises. Uh, I've never been a great or natural meditator, I don't think. So it is practice for me. Um, but this, this entire thing is actually an, an incredible mental practice, I find. You know, it's the, there's this thing about meditation where when people try to meditate, they're really disappointed in themselves because they think it should have been perfect for at least half an hour. And my experience of meditating is if I can get two blasts of 30 seconds each in a half hour where I was actually present, I've just rocked this meditation, this sit. <laughs> How do you feel about it? Well, I mean, you know, I, maybe one day I might have five good minutes and another day I can sit for 30 minutes and feel like I haven't done anything at all. Um, I do think that a, a regularity in practice, no matter if it's five minutes per day, doing it regularly can give you some, some sense of, of where you're at. But it's, yeah, it, I mean, it's a very common reaction I get. Oh, yes, I've tried meditating. I can't do it. Well, frankly, neither can I most of the time. Um, but it's just, you know, it's a commitment to to going back at it and, and spending some time in self-examination and you get different things out of it all the time. But, but it can be of tremendous benefit if you have some regular practice. So your parents, they were practicing Buddhists? Yeah, so my parents uh, both grew up in Montreal. They were hippies. They went to Woodstock together and, um, you know, they were doing some spiritual soul searching at that time on Shom Radio. Oh, yeah. Shom, yeah. So sh little did I know, and my dad assures me, so I hope I'm correct. Shom is actually named after home. So they, act, they had a whole bunch of sort of spiritual programming that they would run at the time back in the 60s. Uh, and on there, they heard a Tibetan Lama, a spiritual master whose name was Chugim Trungpa Rinpoche. And Trungpa Rinpoche was one of the very first Tibetan teachers to come to the West. And they were very taken with him. Um, they followed a path. They ended up studying with um, another Lama in Scotland. They lived in a monastery. That's where I was conceived. Um, and, uh, but they ultimately came back to Montreal and became students of Chigam Trungpa. Sort of so did high. they move to Halifax to the Shambhala Center? They did. So yes, uh, eventually my mother moved to Nova Scotia in the early 80s. Um, and then I was there when this crazy influx of Buddhists from Boulder, Colorado. So for people who don't know, Trungpa Rinpoche was eccentric, sort of, to say the least. He was, um, yeah, he, he did a lot of things. Um, but one of those crazy things was he, he looked at a map and he pointed at Nova Scotia and he said, this is where enlightened society can be created. Um, and so he moved there and so did a bunch of his other students. So, I mean, I went to junior high in Halifax and it was this it was very strange because nobody in, in Halifax knew what to make of these crazy Buddhists from all over the place. So there's a couple of things there for, for me. So one was first he goes to Cape Breton 
because uh, he thought that's where he was supposed to go. Uh, and then he goes, no, that's not it. And he's at the airport about to go back to Boulder and goes, no, this is it. And I'm thinking, okay, the airport's 40 minutes away from Halifax, but it's close enough. Okay, this is it. So uh, then he goes there. Uh, I have been to Gampo Abbey, which is uh, yeah. where Peta Ch uh, Chandran uh, has, I, I think she's just retired actually as a Buddhist nun. And she wrote that great book, When Things Fall Apart. Um, but uh, it is a completely different thing than the Shambhala Center in Halifax. It is a windswept yeah. Cape Breton, beautiful, rugged place, more of a monastery feeling to it. It is. I mean, you can, you can go there as a lay person to practice, um, but it is inhabited by monastics. So it, it's, yeah. A, it's a, yeah, it is. It is a rugged retreat center. And a lot of the people who went to Halifax to follow uh, the Lama um, were Jews from New York who'd gone to Boulder. So they're part of what is commonly known as the Jubu movement. The you Jewish are exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And there was, remember that bookstore, Trident Books? Yes, of course. Still there. Is it still there? In Halifax, there's one in Halifax still. Yeah. Oh, cool! Because I, I remember going there. Uh, I, I immersed myself in a lot of Buddhism when I was younger, so I I remember going there and thinking, we don't even have this in Toronto. This is fantastic. Uh, but there were all these people, including your parents. And so, how do you raise a child as a Buddhist? That's something I've always been interested in. Well, I mean, I can. My experience is very different than my daughter's experience. I will say mm -hmm. so. Um, my parents in my mom in particular was like all in. Um, so I went, I went, I lived in Wolfville during elementary school and I, I lived about three minutes from school. So I would come home for lunch. Um, my mom would be getting my lunch ready and I would be sent up to our shrine room to meditate for 10 minutes. So this is me at the age of eight, totally not meditating, but I would have, I would be forced to sit there and meditate for 10 minutes. So I, you know, and I was, um, I was brought along to talks and programs. It was a Wonder bit times. more of a wild time. So, so you know, I met so, you're, so, so you're eight, you're eight yeah. and you're sitting. Yeah. Um, what were you doing in those t 10 minutes? Um, I think my mind was wandering. I mean, I probably, you know, I had received meditation instruction. So uh, maybe I tried a little bit, but I distinctly remember singing songs in my head and tapping my fingers like twinkle, twinkle, little star, just to see uh, right. see where it ended on my fingers. Right, right. I, you know, I just got through it. So <laughs> I know, but it's interesting because in Judaism, there's a belief that you don't teach children religion. It's a, it's a waste of time that you live the religious life, but you don't teach the religious life mm -hmm. until they're about 20, uh, because then they can understand concepts of the divine and the connectedness and the network of the universe and you know all these things. And at eight, it's just twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> it, for, for sure it was. I mean, I, I, got, I got a lot out of the community. Mm -hmm. To me, that that's the, that's where I learned. And, um, you know, obviously there's a, a language and, um, you know, a, a way of speaking and a way of comporting uh, oneself. And, and there's a lot of ceremony uh, right. in Buddhism. So, you know, I, I kind of just through growing up in it, I understood a lot. 
it really wasn't until I was in my 20s that I had sort of retreated from it and then found it again and then you know committed to to a path of Buddhism took refuge and and pursued that so I, I don't want to jump too far ahead but you retreat like almost every adolescent would retreat what is it do you remember the path back to to the eightfold path do you remember how you how you got back to where you wanted to be at that point so yeah i, I definitely i had the rebellion can i am i allowed to swear yes okay so i remember thinking like stop feeding me your buddhist propaganda bullshit which is like <laughs> so funny to me right now your buddhist propaganda bullshit um and uh yeah i well i think I, Fuck the four noble truths. That's what I say. Right. <laughs> um, I found my way really back to it. Um, I started. I started a relationship with an old friend of mine who was also what we called a Dharma brat, and I think that sort of that brought me back into the fold and reconnected with the community. Mm. And so this, that was it. Buddhism in the western context can what does it feel like does it do you feel that you're in some other orbit or do you did you find that there was a seamlessness that you could understand the things around you but you know it wasn't like being a an amish person in a in a farm with a horse you know like mm -hmm. how easy or hard was it to be buddhist and to be in this world you know, I mean, I think that's the incredible thing about Trungpa Rinpoche's teachings is that the the path of Shambhala was sort of designed for what they would call a householder yogi, somebody who is in the world, understanding that the West is is not the East and we are not monastics and that we have to be able to integrate these practices into our daily lives. But for sure, sometimes it felt very strange. I mean, I remember especially because it was not common back in the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, I was embarrassed as a kid. I was embarrassed when I would give a friend a tour of my house and they would open this door and see this shrine with these pictures of these Tibetan dudes and these wrathful deities. And um, so, you know, that was, that was intense for me, for sure. Um, and, you know, sometimes back in those days, you know, some of the, the, the advanced programs through the, the Shambhala Buddhist world were months long. So you would sometimes have to make a decision. Okay, I'm going to go spend three months in the Rocky Mountains meditating and kind of leave my life. And sometimes reintegration is not easy. So for sure, the two worlds bumped up against each other on occasion. But um, I think this kind of Buddhism more more than others is easier to integrate perhaps. Yeah, I mean there's there's so but it's still Tibetan Buddhism, which is kind of like yeah. the in Christianity it would be like Russian Orthodox or Catholic. There's there's a lot of literally mm -hmm. bells and whistles uh in the Tibetan path as opposed to uh the Vipassana path, you know, the Tibetans do one thing, but the Thais do a completely different thing. There's no chanting in your meditation. There's just breath awareness and and all of that. So it 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 would be a thing, I guess, for your you know your kid, the kid from school coming over and opening a door and seeing saffron and 
you know, it's like, what the, um, how did you square that? Did you just stop having kids come over or, you know, cause some people, some kids don't want to not fit in. Right. I, I remember. In. Yeah. I remember doing a couple of different things. I mean, sometimes I sort of copped to it. I mean, they, everybody knew we were the Buddhist family, <laughs> the only <laughs> Buddhist family in Wolfville. Um, and I do remember that my, my parents were doing some particularly advanced practices that included um, sort of these, these drums and bells. And mm. I mean, there's just no hiding it. So I would, I think I kind of just, you know, rolled my eyes and like, oh yeah, my crazy parents are just doing their crazy Buddhist thing. But I also remember, I remember lying. I remember um, telling somebody that there was a crazy Buddhist group that was renting a space in our house. And that's <laughs> why there was a shrine there. Oh my so God. I'm not, I'm not proud of that one, but yeah, but hard. you know, it, 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 come on, you know, uh, no kid wants to be the kid who's not like the other kids. They hate it. So, you know, <laughs> I don't blame you for trying uh, this. And did, did you ever have to say that the people are still renting or did you just leave it at that? <laughs> I think I, I think I left it at that. Just but, leave I mean, it. it's that's, good. But when, you know, when, the Buddhist invasion happened in, in Halifax. That was of great comfort to me because I all of a sudden wasn't the only one. And so you can be more open and honest about it. What in the teachings has found its organic way into your life? Oh boy. Um, I would say something that I work with the most, which is one of the most basic tenets of, of Buddhism, um, is the idea of Buddha nature. Um, the idea that we are basically good, that, that we are a perfect as we are blank slate, um, and that everything else that swirls around is but concepts. Um, I think especially you know, in the Western world, so much of what we do and so much of what we're socialized to believe is so counter to that. And so I know that I, I struggle with that all the time, feeling not enough or not worthy enough. And so I think the constant reminder um, that we are all basically good is really important. That's interesting because I think, uh, I was watching a, a video of you doing your song, uh, I'm not beautiful like you, I'm beautiful like me. And I thought, that sounds to me like it's, a, it, we all make this journey of, I'm supposed to be beautiful like you, uh, because we live in a world driven by desire. Uh, marketing mm -hmm. is desire. It is, you have to sell inadequacy if you're going to sell a product. You're not good enough yet, but you know what? If you do this thing, I think you'll be in pretty good shape. Like, you know, little Lexus is going to look pretty good on you, let me tell you. <laughs> so to me, when I heard the song, I, I heard the struggle for, and then the, the standing to say, I, I, I'm me. I don't need to be beautiful like you. I'm beautiful like me. And the beautiful like you, though, was a, a seriously kick-ass person, so... I was wondering, is that the, is that the the Tara Sloan? Is that the like you know what? Well, I mean that. So I'll 
that song was written by the drummer in the band, Tony Rabelow, who is a deeply spiritual person and a meditator himself. Um, and so that was actually one of the first songs they played me when I met the band. And it drew me in right away because I think, I, I mean, I resonate with that message so much. And sometimes you just, you need to say things out loud to make them true, you know? Yeah. And, um, and that was a way of, of saying that out loud. And um, in fact, somebody, some like really big fitness person on Instagram just posted that, uh, that quote on their Instagram page yesterday. So clearly, you know, it, it, it resonates with people. And I remember when, when that song was big in the States, I mean, the, the messages we would get, you know, the, the people oh, who yeah. found solace in, in, in that was incredible. Yeah. Music is spiritual too, right? Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're being sincere, which is why you can always tell when you're watching someone who's trying to be like other people, you know, using their voice with the same inflection of the biggest star of the day and things like that. But, you know, God love them. They're, they're, they still want to find their voice. What's your journey been to finding your voice? Because you, you have many manifestations of who you are and how you do things. Um, you know, I don't know if I'll ever feel like that journey is over. It's a, it's a constant uncovering. Um, I, I feel, oh gosh, I mean, I feel like I've found something substantial now in the last few years even, but it's, I mean, there's just a giant learning curve along the way. Um, in the, in the band in those days, I had a lot of trouble speaking up for myself, um, being straightforward about what I needed in my life. And so it took a lot of pain, I think, for the whole band to realize that we needed to care about ourselves and care about each other in order for the whole to work. Um, and so I think it's just, I don't know if it's age, you know, I'm, I'm 46. I've been afforded uh, some, some breaks in my career and uh, I certainly don't feel like I'm in a place of complacency, but I do feel like I now have a platform um, and some certain lack of fear that I didn't have before about speaking out for things that I believe. Why? And, Why now? Um, it feels choiceless. I mean, I do think I, I have, I'm in a privileged position. I completely acknowledge that. I'm on TV. I'm a cisgendered, straight white woman um, who can command a certain audience. Um, I've always been passionate about equality. I've always been passionate about inclusion and diversity. And <clears throat> uh, so I just think all of these things combined, plus... Like that's, if I die tomorrow, that's what I want to, to be proud of on my deathbed. Being mm. a good mother, being a good person, being a good family member, being loving and fighting and speaking up for the things that I believe to be important. So I don't know what switched, <laughs> yeah. but, but it, it did. What about it kids? Did, did, was having kids a big flick of a switch? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I noticed when I, I have four children, but my first one is 33 now. So it's been a long journey. 
and I've got a 10 year old downstairs right now. Um, but I noticed almost immediately after the birth of my first kid that the unalterable truth of my mortality had just arrived. Mm. That this kid is here, I'm done. Right? That's my job is to replace me and try to be a decent human being to this person with all my flaws. But even that wasn't the point. The point was, well, this means you're dying for sure. Because, you know, there's this whole belief that we wake up every day and delude ourselves into thinking, you know, like Woody Allen would say, dying, you know, I get it. It's just not for me, you know. <laughs> and or uh, was it Dustin Hoffman on the gravestone once who wants him to put I knew this would happen. <laughs> so, so these things come real when you have children and perhaps give us an urgency to stuff that we were kind of rehearsing, but not really thinking we had to put into play. Does that yeah. resonate? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I want to, I want to be a good role model for her. Um, I want, and I want a better world for her. Hmm. You know, I don't, I mean, the most, I remember when I was pregnant, um, having this like hit that just viscerally took my body over thinking like, oh my God, this person that I'm bringing into the world is going to suffer. And so anything that I can do um, to, to try to, you know, get a, a better world set up for her. Suffering is a major part of the teachings in Buddhism. Sure is. Yeah, it's inevitable. Right. So how does it... Yet we, we're really trying to do our best to avoid it at all costs. And there are, you know, schools of thought that say you shouldn't have to suffer. So even in cases of people saying, I have an illness that eventually will kill me, um, as opposed to a streetcar that will eventually kill me, but I have uh, an illness, so I'd rather die at two o'clock on Wednesday afternoon of my own volition. I, I find I'm, I don't know if I'll do that if it comes to that, but I find that spiritually that's a hard question for me of what is the place of suffering in our lives and, and what, what does suffering teach us that we really need to hear? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm in the teachings, it's our constant desire to escape from suffering that leads to suffering. Right. So, it's something about just, you know, tr trying to get away from, from what's happening that is bringing us constant, constant suffering. So there is the possibility. I mean, as Buddhism can sometimes feel very dark because it talks about the, the truth of suffering um, and this sort of seeming inevitability of suffering. But the truth is, um, there is this cycle, but there is the possibility of breaking this cycle. And so it's, you know, it, again, through meditation practice, start recognizing mm. that thoughts are not solid. Um, yeah, and that we're not solid. And that we're not solid. And so, but, and it's constantly hoping and fearing these things actually cause us to suffer. Well, so then this takes me back to the beginning of the conversation and the idea of having a life uh, of distraction. Mm -hmm. that's Suffering. interesting <laughs> right so then it leads you to because you know i'll walk into a kitchen 
And before I even do anything, I'll just turn on the radio. And I said, did I really need to do that? But just turn it on anyway. I know I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm just distracting myself. And then I'll get some food because it's like two in the afternoon and I've been working upstairs and what the hell, I might as well eat something. Distraction, distraction. So there I am dancing as fast as I can to not be here. And I'm always amazed when I'm working with people, how much energy we put into not being here. Like, what mm -hmm. is it about being here that's so awful? I, I, I don't know that I have the right answer for that, but um, we're just, I think we're just not used to it. It feels unpleasant. It's like when, that's why people want to run away from meditation when they think they can't do it um, because they want it to be something else. They want to have transformed as opposed to sort of facing what they actually like, are. I know, but like at eight, you know, do we change from twinkle, twinkle, little star uh, to 46 years old and going twinkle, twinkle, get on the plane? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we, I think we become very addicted to it from a young age. I know, uh, I'm always still wondering though, why is it so hard, even though you know full well, for instance, the, the beautiful effect on one's life of, of a meditation practice, and yet I personally struggle with it all the time and think, yeah, I should today. Mm, nah. So why, what, what is it about us, you know, that's got us, you know, running around like chickens with our head? That's why this COVID thing has been so interesting to me, because all of a sudden there's time and you can't make the excuse that you got to get to the gig. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know, the, the car's picking me up. I got to get to the plane. We got to get to Red Deer. We're doing the thing. Ron's going to be there. I'm already here we go. There's the stuff. See you later. I'm on the plane. I'm coming home, <laughs> you know, that, and it feels exhilarating at times. And at other times it's like, if they ask me to take my shoes off one more time, I'm going to just off myself. So what is it that we're doing, you know, from a Buddhist perspective, what is it? Is it that we're too afraid of what we'll find if we if we stop running? I think so. I think so. I mean, I think first of all, this society in particular is just we are just tuned up, you know, from from the moment we start. We just there's not we don't give anybody space. We don't give ourselves space. We don't give our kids space. Um, we don't let our kids be bored. Right. We don't let ourselves be bored. We don't find benefits of, of boredom. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think when you, when you start to kind of see what's really going on, you don't always like it, you know? And so a big part of sort of Buddhist practices is loving kindness towards oneself and, and making friends with, with yourself. But in order to make friends with yourself, you need to be, you need to have a, an honest look and to have an honest look, you have to slow down. The Dalai Lama talks about suffering being the reason we can be compassionate, right? That without it, we wouldn't actually be compassionate. We, mm -hmm. Because we have suffered, you know, when you see suffering in the world. I don't know, as I get older, um, I see something on Twitter where somebody, there's a show of affection or caring or memorial or something. And I just, I, I'm almost crying immediately. I'm just holding my heart and thinking the world can break your heart so many times in so many ways that, and yet if you, if you speak to a, a monk who's been practicing their whole life, they don't stop laughing. Like Isn't it amazing? <laughs> laughing all the time. Unbelievably joyful. Yeah. You know, the Dalai Lama is the kind of person, uh, Desmond Tutu, 
uh, who was the Bishop of South Africa. You know, I interviewed the guy once, uh, a lovely man, and he just found everything hilarious. You know, he asked him a question and he'd laugh. And then my, my uh, broadcasting partner, she interviewed the Dalai Lama. He was literally in Toronto. And I was like, I wanted to interview. So she interviews the Dalai Lama and she got the exact same interview. <laughs> everything was really funny. And he had a great sense of humor. And Leonard Cohen, a guy who, you know, you think, oh, he's so, you know, it's dark. I mean, the last album is, it's, get, it's dark. It, you know, it's not dark enough yet, but it's getting darker. And yet, I, when I'd interview him, I'd find him to be one of the funniest guys that I, that I spoke to. So I don't know. Maybe if, if we let ourselves feel the suffering, we can actually find the joy. I guess that's the idea, right? Feel the suffering, yes. And I think the acknowledgement of impermanence because yes. it allows you to let go. You know, when you really take a look at the fact that we are all going to die, yeah. it feels really intense. But I do think that there is a, a release that comes with not just grasping at everything. And the biggest grasping we do is grasping at being here in this life, in this world, in this body. Yeah, Ramdas talks about the that you just get this spacesuit and yours has Terra on it. And then yeah. Terra's done and the spacesuit goes away. So when you think of things, so one of the major tenets of Buddhism that is hard for Westerners is reincarnation. Even though I might add that in mystical Christianity and mystical Judaism, I'm not sure about in Islam, uh, reincarnation is part of the belief system. Where are you on reincarnation? I think that I sort of believe it. <laughs> <laughs> want to believe it? I want, yeah, I think I sort of want to believe it. And not because it's actually, uh, I mean, it's not any, I don't, there's not a lot of comfort in reincarnation particularly. Especially right? if you it's, go to a lower realm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not like, oh, well, that's okay. This will just be on hold and then I'm going to be reborn into a situation that's ideal. Yeah. I mean, but I do think that when, yeah, so there's probably a lot of misunderstanding about what reincarnation entails because it, according to Buddhism, we're, we have all been each other's mother and we have been the mother of every living being in the world. Which so how is a many lovely thought, though. It is a lovely thought, but it's it it just gives you it kind of breaks apart our concept of time and space too. Um, so yeah, it's pretty far out there. But I mean, I certainly, as reincarnation pertains to karma and the laws of of cause and effect, um, you know, I think that's what I take away from it is is right. the teachings on karma which is grossly misunderstood in most circles <laughs> as you know yes. you get what you know you try you you mean to somebody you're gonna get mean back it's like no it's a very complicated idea karma very complicated yes and yet we all we, i i'm always amazed uh about the buddha in the garden you know the garden gnome buddha and I and the uh, I just think that's it. That's what we're going to do with this person. <laughs> we're gonna, we're going to put him in a garden because I want people to know I'm kind of copacetic. I mean, we've commodified everything, so we now yeah. have commodified Buddhism, uh, which must make the practice of it harder. Do, do is your daughter? How old's your daughter? She's not that old, right? She's ten. Ten. Okay, so she's as old as my youngest. So, does your daughter identify as Buddhist? 
No, not at all. And I mean, I'm, I'm fine with that. She, I'd like to give her as much freedom of choice as, as she would like. Um, she's been, she's participated in Buddhist activities and, and sort of cultural settings. Um, she's meditated. She, you know, so she has some understanding of it, but I, she, you know, I'm less part of a, like, a Buddhist community. I mean, I have, there's a center I'm a member of here, but we don't go as a family too often. So she doesn't have a kind of what I ended up having right. um, when I lived in Halifax, which is, I think too bad for her. You think? Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it's nice to have other friends who maybe have the same language, but I leave it up to her. She'll, she, I'm always going to speak in these terms. So right. that's what she'll know. Do you have a shrine at home? I don't only because I, we don't have a good amount of space, but I do have, um, I do have objects that I can bring if I'm doing a certain kind of practice and I have meditation cushion situated and yeah, I have, so I have a little space. So she doesn't have to tell people that you've rented some room room out to someone. We do, I mean, we do have Tonka paintings with, you know, deities and for sure. I mean, some kids might ask, but. You have wrathful deities in the house. I have some. I have some protectors. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I always liked the look of the wrathful deities. They were scary. Very scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Bardo states. Yeah. I love the Tibetan book of living and dying. The Sugil Rinpoche. Yeah. One? Yeah. It's a beautiful book. I always thought. Yeah. You know, I, I was just thinking, by the way, of the idea that we've all been each other's mother. So technically, you've been Ron McLean's mother at one yes, point. Yes, I have. Yes, and he's been mine. <laughs> and he's been your mother at and one he's point. Been but you see, there's a beautiful thing in there. If we actually, even metaphorically or poetically, thought those thoughts of people you're talking to, there's a, a in Judaism, Martin Buber wrote about the I and it relationship and the I and thou relationship. Mm-hmm. And the I and it is the commodified relationship. What use is Tara to me? She's going to get me a gig. I better go talk to her because she could, you know, tell somebody who tells somebody that I could get this gig and that'd be great. So I'm going to go hang around with Tara or I'm talking to you and realize that you're not going to get me anything. So, you know, it's at that party where that person's kind of looking over your shoulder as you're talking to them and you're realizing you're, you're not quite what they were looking for that day. So there's I and it, we've all lived that, but I and thou, the notion of the divine spark in everyone and everything, you know, the diamond sutra that the p- piece of paper you're reading on was a tree, was on the planet, was in the in the galaxy, was in the universe, and that we're stardust moving constantly in different formations. You know, those to me, those are beautiful concepts that really can enliven uh, a more compassionate approach to the others, the I and thou. And I think Buddhism has a beautiful, the Sangha together, the community together has a way of, of repeating those ideas enough mm-hmm. that it might get through to us every once in a while. Well, I, and I think that this time, it, again, there's this opportunity to see the interconnectedness of us all. Um, and that that is exactly what you're speaking of, You know that I have been your mother, that you have been my mother, whatever, sort of whatever you want to use metaphorically um but we are all connected and there we all suffer you know 
we all experience suffering and there's so much richness in every human, no matter if you love them or hate them. And we're just so intent in this society on creating our individual selves and yeah. separating from, from other. And um, yeah, it's very counter to, to Buddhist teachings. Yeah, and to, to I'd say to most religious teachings, and yet people take these things and make them something different. Mm. They, they become exceptional. I'm I'm a, a good Buddhist. I meditate all the time, and uh, you know I'm living the the eightfold path. I'm a good Buddhist. Uh, we we it's hard not to be prideful at times, right? And then you know, I think about all those towns you go to see. And I just think, you know, those people see themselves as good, mostly in Canada, good Christian white people, right? Um, but then there's the little girl whose parents are Buddhists who has to pretend that they're, there's some freak who came to, to visit, not, not their parents and not them. And then there's the Jewish kid like me who comes and moves into the neighborhood. And that otherness gets inflamed. And, and it's sad to me because... It's much harder for us to see our commonality than it is to see our differences. We're always looking for them. And, and part of that, I would imagine, is survival, right? Like, it's, it's a survival instinct is, who is that person? Are they a threat or a, a danger to me? Should I kill them? Uh, that's part of the reptilian brain. That's still part of who we are. And Buddhism seems to be an attempt to kind of tame that animal side of our brain and, and mm -hmm. channel it into a what is very hard for people to maintain, which is a loving kindness. Well, I mean, I've certainly heard it said that, I mean, you know, what makes, uh, what gives us an, an advantage, like only, only humans, this, you know, the sentient beings that are humans can really achieve uh, enlightenment because of the discriminating awareness and the brains that we've been given, but it also makes it incredibly hard. Yeah. Because our brains do all of these things, separating self, other, um, just doing all of this logicking all the time. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's it's this double-edged sword to be to be human, but there is the opportunity always, yeah. right? To yeah, and impermanence is the other really hard one, right? It's just that um, you know, I mean, even um, you've got this. Uh, great gig right like on with hockey and with ron and it's all good yeah you've got to be able to unattach yourself from i am this gig mm -hmm. because the gig like all gigs has its time and its life um and you if if one is more in the practice through meditation of the impermanence of every thought that travels through your head it might be easier when somebody calls up and says eh, the show's over yeah. I mean, it, it won't be completely easy, but it might be a bit easy. Me, I've got, uh, I had to have reconstructive surgery on my nose about eight years ago from an illness. Uh, and I don't look like me anymore as far as I'm concerned. I look like Stephen King's cousin or something. He's got this weird thingy nose. And I, every day, realize that I've been given a Buddhist practice of mm -hmm. impermanence. It's like you thought you were this guy with this nice Jewish nose who, you know, didn't look that bad. And now I look at myself, that's not me. And I think, well, wait a minute, that is me. So we all get our, our, our kind of comeuppance when it comes mm -hmm. to impermanence. 
but there's constantly this pull to say, no, no, because if I'm permanent, I don't die. Right. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. want we want ourselves to be solid. We we um, I mean, I, I've certainly experienced it. You know, knock on wood, I've been generally lucky. But I've I I remember how hard it was for me to transition out of music um, because I spent so long identifying myself as Tara the Tara the rocker, Tara the rock star, um, and you know, I had a lot of dark years where. I kind of knew a transition had to happen, but I didn't know what to do and how to do it. And I, I just felt so scared to not be that anymore. Um, but I did it, but it, it, you know, it's, I, I feel like I probably will face the same thing. I mean, the, the future is very uncertain right now for me and my career. Right. I mean, I work on a, hockey show first of all when's hockey coming back when are we gathering to watch sports part of my show is uh it comes with a traveling festival where people gather i mean so every you know everything is up in the air um so i am maybe a, there's a bit of you know I, i'm a bit fortunate in that i can sort of start to prepare myself for that which i kind of was anyway but yes when you are, think you're a thing <laughs> and, then, and then you're, and then it's revealed that you're not that thing. It's terribly frightening. Yeah, and when you're in public life, there's this thing that people think you are, mm-hmm. who've never met you or meet you, and already have assumed a whole bunch of things about you that they'd really like to believe are true. Uh, and even that, it's sort of this is not a permanent thing, you know, uh, good or bad, right? Yeah. So, but it's more vulnerable. And I, I think the practice itself, sometimes I think is more about just allowing your vulnerability to happen. And at, you know, and I'll, I'll go back to Trumper Rinpoche again, the, the, in the Shambhala teachings, he talks about the warrior. It's called Shambhala, the sacred path of the warrior. And um, the warrior is armed with vulnerability. Right. Mm, that's right. that's the in that this tradition that is with an open heart the warrior goes into the world. It's it's a it's a different than what, how we traditionally regard a warrior. Chagyam's uh, crazy wisdom too, though, right? I mean, yes. <laughs> I mean, crazy stuff yeah, that guy did. I, for <laughs> sure, people crawl out of the back yeah. of a limo knock on somebody's door in a better part of Halifax. And then when they opened it, he'd just go, what are you doing? <laughs> and stare at them and then get back in the car. <laughs> For sure. And full disclosure, this, uh, this tradition has been fraught with controversy Oof. over the years and continues yeah. to be. So two in a um, row, two in a row. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I do. For people who don't connection. know, there's, there, there's been sexual abuse. There's been uh, AIDS dying of age, there's been all kinds of crazy stuff that's gone on with with both of them. And yet that even to me is an interesting aspect of what do we really want from clergy? You know, mm-hmm. are we looking for them to be better than us? It's one of the reasons I didn't become a rabbi. Uh, you know, I had I think about it. I had to think about whether I was going to go into that part of the ordination program. And I thought, well, first of all, my Hebrew sucks. So that's not going to help. 
that'd be a year of just Hebrew again, which I didn't want to do. But it was also this idea that I'm I'm not at that point in my life where I need someone to a group of a large group of people to say, "Wow, well, you're great." And yet, there's a theatrical part to clergy, and there's an expectation that that they're better than you, which in Jungian terms is really damaging to the clergy because there's only they only expect light from you, no shadow. Right. And so, so you end up with Christian evangelists who are found in motels doing cocaine with prostitutes because they can't, you know, they, there is no place to put their shadow and they, they just have to squeeze out the side. So with Rinpoche, I, I, both those Rinpoche, I felt bad, right? Mm -hmm. that, that maybe it's the pressure of everyone saying you are part, you are a, a step in the ladder of the divine and yeah, not such a good step after a while, it kind of breaks. Well, this, yeah, the, this community is wrestling with that big time. And there's certainly, um, it's very divided and it's, it can be a very dangerous, dangerous place yeah. to be held on, you know, that, that pedestal. Yeah. So that's why, I mean, the other thing about Buddhism is you didn't have to be, there are people who can practice aspects of Buddhism who don't have to be Buddhists. They can just, yeah. Right, so there's an openness, and there's no God in Buddhism. There's no, there's deities, but there's no God. But the deities are more representations of aspects of ourselves, um, but not solid things. Yeah, I don't know. I think I, I, I'd like to. I got to interview somebody from the Hindu faith because I don't know enough. But you know, all the different gods in Hinduism are really just different aspects of God. Mm -hmm. That, that's all they, they're not like there's 18 gods. They're all like the Romans and Greeks had different aspects of the divine. So, well, listen, this has been great. I've really, really enjoyed, great. Yeah, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, Thank I hope I want to give you a, the only Buddhist blessing I ever said in public, which I said at a Kumbaya festival when AIDS was at its worst. Um, Molly Johnson put together a festival and we did it at Ontario place. And I, I, I wrote a thing saying, I don't want to be here. You know, this isn't why I want to be on a stage with a bunch of people because people are dying and we're not doing enough. And we, we did all that. But then I left it with, with this, what I'll leave with you, a blessing for you. And a friend of mine, her brother, who was dying of AIDS, watched the show. And when he heard this little small blessing, he, he turned to his sister and he said, I feel good now. And within a couple of days, he was gone. So it was a lovely thing. But it was, it was the simple one. It was, may you be filled with loving kindness. May you be blessed. May you be peaceful and at ease. May you be happy. So Tara Sloan, I wish that for you. And Ralph, I wish that for you. And since you're my mother, can I have my allowance? <laughs> Have you done your chores? Uh, ish. I've done ish. I will okay. later after sure. the allowance comes. I think I've, I think we both heard that one. <laughs> you, you, you take care of yourself and I hope that uh, everything goes uh, very well. Be safe. Thank you. Likewise. Well, that's it for Not That Kind of Rabbi. I'm Ralph ben Murgy, and I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. Tara Sloan, you'll probably know from hometown hockey with Ron McLean and uh, certainly as a, a rock star, which she legitimately is uh, and has been in her lifetime, but also a practicing Buddhist. So um, you take care of each other. If you uh, want to spread the word about Not That Kind of Rabbi, please do and uh, get people to subscribe. 
the more the merrier. And if you're interested in sponsoring this fine program, uh, let us know. Uh, you can get in touch with us at ralphbenmergie at gmail.com. So just put that in, ralphbenmergie at gmail.com. If you have any ideas for people you'd like me to interview as well, please add those to whatever you want to do. So you take care. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. podcast has been produced by tmds and accelerated by rome phone rome phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number 